Hello, dreamers, and welcome to the latest episode of California Dreaming. This is the fifth part of our series on the rise and fall of Theranos and its founder and former CEO, Elizabeth Holmes. I also want to thank you very quickly for listening and for being patient on me getting this fifth part out. I spent more time than I wanted to on the Patreon episode, but I got this one done. It is Saturday night, and I intend to get this out to you before this day is over. I also want to thank you for listening to and enjoying this podcast. It is an independent one woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can help support this show. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform that you listen to the show on. That helps give us more visibility and helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to go above and beyond and have a couple of dollars each month to spare, you can support us on Patreon. You'll gain access to dozens of full-length exclusive bonuses, and you'll be helping to keep the lights on and the puppies' bellies full of treats. This show relies 100% on your donations and all of them, whether they're $1 or $100, which nobody donates $100, but... Just saying, it's on there. I think it's an option. I mean, you can actually technically donate any amount that you want. You don't have to pick a tier. If you wanted to donate $99.99 a month, you could do that. But nobody does that. And it's okay. I don't. This show is not worth $99 a month. So please don't. Anyway, I'm not going to thank new patrons this week because the first of the month is coming up and I always get a little bit more of an influx then when people start juggling around which shows they want to um, support. So the next part should have some more thank yous for all of you. And if Patreon isn't your thing and you would still like to help out, you can do so through the show's PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Sources for this episode include the book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, as well as articles online, and everything will be credited as needed in the show, as well as in the show notes where you can find the links to everything. So let's go ahead and get back to this multi-part series of California Dreaming, the tale of a girl boss and the Silicon Valley of lies. Oh, and one last thing before I forget. If you stay tuned to the end of this episode, you will hear a promo for a podcast called Dealing Justice. They've recently found out that the concept of their podcast may or may not have been intentionally or unintentionally copied by another much, much bigger podcast that shall remain nameless, but it rhymes with the words slime flunky. So in order to support the indie podcast community, you may have already heard their promo on several of your favorite shows because we all banded together to get behind them. So listen to the promo and if it sounds like something that you would enjoy, give them a download and a listen and maybe throw some five star reviews their way if you can. All right, let's get on with it. Last time in part four, we got a couple of insights into Elizabeth Holmes, thanks to an interview with her nemesis, Richard Fuzz. He spoke to Forbes magazine. 
we got into more details about what exactly the biggest problems were with the Edison and the Mini Lab, which is basically everything. I talked about some of the 240 different types of tests that Theranos had once listed on its website, along with the cost of each. And as it turns out, with everything that it was costing to develop the blood testing system, all of the years that was put into it, and the low prices that Theranos was claiming that it would be charging for the testing, even if by some act of God, or if you're an atheist, an act of your higher self, that the mini lab actually started working, it wouldn't be making any money. So it would really have to be in every single home. It would have to be out there in mass in order for the company to even consider staying afloat. And as I've re-listened to some of the podcasts on this, just to keep my mind on the little details, I heard someone say that in all the years that Theranos was in business, they never made money. They lost millions every single year. We got to know some more of the employees who came and went and some who came and goofed off and clowned around. We got to know some of the cliques that developed. We affectionately named them the NASA Pack and the Shat Pack. We heard some of the highlights from Her Royal Highness herself, Queen Elizabeth, as she addressed her subjects at her annual Christmas Jubilee. And we wrapped up with some of Sonny's lunacy when he called the cops accusing residing employee Big Tell Barnwell of stealing property with his mind. You know what those cops should have done? They should have hauled Balwani's ass into jail and maybe even taken him into the hospital and placed a 72-hour 5150 hold on him for being such a big dope. So we're going to pick up the timeline from there. We're getting into early 2012 now. When it came to the deal that Elizabeth had with Safeway, she had the fortune of their misfortune in that Safeway was struggling when she came around with the Edison and eventually called it the Mini Lab. Safeway had suffered a decline in profits towards the end of 2011, and it was up to the company's longtime CEO, Steve Bird, to answer to the poor performance on the quarterly earnings meetings. To refresh your memory, we were introduced to Steve Bird back in part three. He's the one who had rejuvenated Safeway at the beginning of his time there, and then after about 10 years or so, he began to refocus on the wellness of its employees, which spilled over into possibly offering wellness services in their stores. And this is when the idea of putting Edison's in Safeways came about. He was also the one who had gifted Elizabeth that single white flower and the scale model of a private jet that had Walgreens executive Dr. Jay Rosen, head of their company's innovation team, insisting that they needed to start giving Elizabeth some gifts too. While some of Safeway's financial analysts suggested that maybe they could use an old accounting trick to cause a false increase in the company's stock earnings by utilizing stock buybacks, it would create a more palatable bottom line while the truth was the company's earnings were actually falling. But it was trickery that savvy analysts would be able to spot And Steve Bird shot the idea down very quickly. But he did say that he had a couple of things up his sleeve. And with that, 
he could see things moving in a positive direction for Safeway, at least at this point in time, which was around February of 2012. He told the analysts that he had a series of ventures that they were going after. The first two that Steve mentioned did not impress the analysts very much, but the third one captured their attention. However, Steve remained pretty vague about it. All he would say is that it was a quote-unquote wellness play. He didn't get specific, but within Safeway, they referred to it as Project T-Rex, and it was a plan to revitalize the aging business. Steve was really excited about this partnership with Theranos, so much so that he initiated the plans to start remodeling approximately 900 of their 1,700 Safeway locations to make way for what Theranos instructed them to call wellness centers. And per Elizabeth's strict design parameters, they needed to appear more luxurious and opulent than a day spa. She wanted elegant floorings and beautiful fixtures, custom cabinets and granite countertops, and it would all be on Safeway's dime a cost of approximately $350 million, which to Steve, the CEO, was just a drop in the bucket compared to what he thought they would see in profits once they had the Theranos blood testing systems in their stores. Several weeks after Steve had announced the plans for his wellness play, he, along with some of his top executives and the company's financial analysts, visited a Safeway in the city of Oakland that had a completed wellness center in it. And it looked really nice and everybody was impressed. But nobody had any idea what exactly the plan was for this wellness center, nor did they know what kind of services that Safeway was planning on offering to customers. That's because Theranos made it clear to Steve that nobody was to know anything about the mini lab blood testing device until they were ready for the ribbon cuttings. Well, I'm certain that it shocks nobody to know that Elizabeth and Sunny have really stepped in it now. I know, I know what you're thinking. Not the blue suede Gucci's, right? Yeah, the both of them are up to their chest hairs and turtlenecks in it. They've got Safeway spending hundreds of millions of dollars for a machine that does not work. Better yet, really, a machine that barely even exists. Yet somehow, some way, Elizabeth and Sunny are comfortable with knowingly setting up mini labs that are going to be used on actual human beings with very real healthcare needs and are just going to hope for the best. While these so-called wellness centers are being carved out in Safeway stores across the country, Sunny and Elizabeth, they ought to be pooping their pants knowing that they're about to have these machines out there victimizing people all over the place. And they are all to blame. Safeway, Walgreens, and Theranos. All three of the companies were operating recklessly, driven by greed. I do realize that Elizabeth and Sunny were misleading them, which is why she was convicted last month, and which is why Sunny is probably going to get convicted too. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned Safeway and Walgreens executives may have been. The last I heard, that's how they paved that road to hell. 
I'm not even convinced 100% that Sonny and Elizabeth ever had good intentions. Maybe, maybe Elizabeth did. Somewhere along the way, she had an idea that would make blood testing easier, less painful, more accessible, less costly, and in the long run, be able to possibly detect life-threatening conditions earlier while extending patients' lives. As for Sonny Balwani, I don't think that that guy would know what a good intention looked like if it came up and need him in the balls. And as I said, I put some of the blame on Safeway and Walgreens as well because those companies have the resources to thoroughly vet this equipment and they chose not to and they chose to look the other way because what they were looking for was money, of course, profits, revenue, and they were looking to save their floundering careers. Well-intentioned or not, and I do lean more towards not, Elizabeth has always been about the money. Remember, when she was about age nine, a relative asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up, and she said, a billionaire. Here's the thing. In the year Elizabeth was born, 1984, there were only 12 billionaires on planet Earth. Nine years later, when she said this statement, there were 108. So Elizabeth's goals were lofty even then. She completely hurled over the thought of being just a millionaire and went straight for a billionaire status. From the start, I believe that her dad spoke bitterly about his great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather having made successes of themselves, how they achieved, how they changed the world. Yet it was his grandfather and father who squandered it all. I think Chris Holmes filled his daughter's head with all of these stories of how they were put into financial ruin, how they lost it all, how they destroyed their family name. And while Chris Holmes wasn't raised to achieve because of how his own father mishandled the family finances, he and his wife decidedly worked together and tasked Elizabeth with salvaging their family name. They pushed her to earn a PhD. But I think Elizabeth was well aware of her limitations, and I don't think she was capable of succeeding in school. And her only other option was to figure out another way to become a billionaire. And that would be the only way to prove herself to her parents without having to be bothered with going to classes every day. For the two years that the deal with Safeway was in the works, from 2010 to 2012, there were several setbacks and postponements. And we all know what that was about. Poor management at Theranos, employee turnover, and a faulty blood testing system that kept breaking down and malfunctioning. And I think I'm being generous when I say faulty and malfunctioning because it kind of insinuates that the blood testing system worked and for one reason or another stopped working. While there may have been an accurate test result here or there, I'd argue for what the Edison and the Minilab were supposed to do, that Theranos never had anywhere close to a reliably working machine. 
And that would become abundantly clear another four years down the road when somewhere in the ballpark of one million blood tests that Theranos ran had to be voided in 2016. But we'll get to that mess a little bit later. If you remember back a couple of episodes, I said that Elizabeth at one time had blamed the Edison's failures to produce blood test results on metal roofing, bushes and trees, and remote locations. Well, she outdid herself with her excuses to Steve Bird about the delay for the launch of the mini lab in Safeways when she told him that it was because of the Japanese earthquake and ensuing tsunami in 2011 that had disrupted cartridge production. And those cartridges were an essential part of the testing system. Now, in Kerry Roo's book, he said that some of the Safeway executives thought that sounded kind of absurd. But it was, but it was actually completely absurd. Okay, look, we know that many products are often made in China or assembled in China, and that would include Apple products. They say something like designed by Apple in California and the parts of, say, the iPhone They're made in various countries, but most iPhones are assembled in China. Apple has taken steps to diversify the countries that actually manufacture the parts, but ultimately those parts get sent to China in order to be assembled. In an article I read in foxbusiness.com, it said, Apple assembles the majority of its iPhones in factories located in Zhengzhou, China, though iPhone parts are produced in other countries, including in the United States. The Zhengzhou factory, with about 350,000 assembly workers, can produce as many as 500,000 iPhones per day, and locals call Zhengzhou iPhone City. Apple CEO Tim Cook has pointed out that Apple parts are produced at U.S. electronics manufacturer Corning factories in Kentucky and in Texas, but the phones are mostly assembled in China, and that's, of course, because it's so cheap. But you know what? Japan isn't even in the conversation. While I can't prove definitively that the Japanese earthquake and tsunami and whether or not it had an impact on Theranos' supply chain, when we consider all points, to me, it doesn't sound like it should have. Like I said, the Safeway executives found the excuse to be a pretty big stretch. But that's as far as their doubt seemed to go. Steve Bird took what Elizabeth said as gospel, and he was hooked from day one. He was cuckoo for Liz and Theranos' blood testing systems because he was a health and wellness conscious person. I looked around to see if I could figure out where Theranos parts were made. I didn't expect to be able to find that information because honestly, I don't even really think they got that far. We do know from the information that we had towards the end of part four that Elizabeth had rented a large warehouse not too far from their Palo Alto headquarters where the mini labs were to be manufactured in large quantities. So that was most likely going to be the assembly plant for the mini labs. The electronics companies will manufacture the parts and then send them out to be assembled at plants, and that's where everything gets put together. But there is one thing that could lead us to believe that Japan may possibly have been involved, 
Likely not, because I don't believe anything that Elizabeth says. However, Japan is a country known for their electronics, and that's what we're working with here. The reason I don't believe it is for one, I think Elizabeth and Sunny would both choose the cheapest place for parts to be made, and China just has the sheer number of people to make manufacturing anything in mass cheaper and faster. The pay is super low, which is why many, many things are made or assembled in factories there. Secondly, there really is no reason for either Sunny or Elizabeth to have any sort of issue dealing with China. And I do think it's a big part of the reason why Elizabeth's mom and dad encouraged her to, or made her, I don't know if they forced her or encouraged her to learn to speak Chinese because it is the language spoken by the most people in the world with at least 1.3 billion native speakers and 1.1 billion of those speak Mandarin, which is what Elizabeth studied. Just out of curiosity, I looked it up when it comes to native speakers. Spanish is a distant second with 471 million native speakers. English is third in terms of native speakers from the UK, Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. However, if you factor in the 978 million people in the world who speak English as a second language, it ekes just ahead of China, barely as the most spoken language in the world. But ultimately, China is number one. And both Sunny and Elizabeth have previously visited the country, and they speak the language, and they're comfortable with it. And the third reason why I don't believe the 2011 Japanese earthquake and tsunami had an impact on the rollout of the Minilab into Safeway is because I read an article on everycrs.com that strongly suggested that it likely did not have any impact. But there was just enough information out there about it to enable Elizabeth to spin it that way. The article said that the imports and exports to and from the United States and Japan are expected to be modestly impacted when it comes to overall trade. But certain companies may be affected more so. Things like certain fruits and vegetables and dairy products that may have come from the areas in and around the nuclear reactor that was damaged in the tsunami and the production of car and electronics may also be impacted because that's what the country is mostly known for is their technology in consumer electronics such as TVs, video games, things of that nature. And the fourth reason why I don't believe that the earthquake and tsunami had an impact on Theranos' blood testing devices is because, frankly, making up fantastical stories is what Theranos was built on. And being transparent and honest is not in Elizabeth's wheelhouse. I mean, both she and Sunny lacked those qualities, but overall, it feels like Elizabeth was marginally worse because we know her whole persona, her voice, right down to her wardrobe. It was all carefully orchestrated. At least Sunny had the decency to own being an asshole, right down to dressing like one. So according to Elizabeth in Wonderland, the massive earthquake off the coast of Japan that measured 9.0 on the Richter scale was one of the largest earthquakes ever recorded. 
and it generated a colossal tsunami that only took 30 minutes to reach the eastern coast of Japan. It killed 18,426 people, including 2,527 of them who were never recovered. And to this day, Japanese authorities are still searching for any sign of those missing people. This earthquake and tsunami displaced nearly 500,000 people. 42,565 of them have yet to return. That the cost to the Japanese government was close to $300 billion to recover, with at least another $200 billion in costs for decommissioning the destroyed nuclear plant, compensation for the evacuees affected by the threat of radiation, and decontamination of radioactive materials, And this all brought about 14 million tons of radioactive waste from said decontamination efforts that have been packed into countless plastic waste bags, enough to fill 11 enclosed baseball stadiums. And all of this are stored at the two Japanese towns where the nuclear plant was located. Final destination for all of this radioactive waste is still unknown, which will take as many as 4,000 employees working every single day for at least the next 40 years to complete the decommissioning of the plant. That also contaminated 1.24 million tons of water that's being stored in 1,000 enormous tanks that have also been built on the site of the plant, which will also need to be moved eventually in the future to make room for the ongoing decades of decontamination. And this tsunami did all of that and it delayed the launch of the Theranos mini lab apparently. When it came to dealing with Walgreens and Safeway, you know Elizabeth liked to ingratiate herself with one person. She wanted the older rich white guy. And if anybody else in either company was getting too pesky or nosy, they were quickly swatted down by their own executives. It happened at Walgreens when lab consultant Kevin Hunter was getting a little bit too pushy with wanting to see the lab, and Elizabeth just didn't like all of his questions, like how dare he. Same thing happened at Safeway. If anyone started asking questions or bringing up concerns about the technology, Steve was the one who fielded all of it and assured everybody that he would take it up with Elizabeth. But it was still surprising to many of the company's higher-ups just how much wiggle room Steve gave Elizabeth, where he would normally not budge from deadlines. He allowed Elizabeth to push them back repeatedly. Everyone can tell that Elizabeth had him wrapped around her little finger. After all of the holdups and missed deadlines, it was coming time for Elizabeth and Sonny to put their money where their big mouth was and to get the mini lab up and running at the Safeway locations. We are in the early part of 2012, and the first thing Safeway had agreed to was to allow Theranos to do some beta testing at their own health clinic that Steve had set up at their corporate headquarters located in Pleasanton, California. The clinic was for Safeway employees only, and it offered free physicals. If an employee met certain criteria, 
they would receive a discount on the amount that they paid in premiums for their health insurance. It was an incentive to encourage company employees to be more health conscious. The deal was for Theranos to first take charge of that clinic's blood testing system, and then they would go on from there. Laurie Renda, if you remember her from a couple episodes back, she was the executive at Safeway who was really moved by Elizabeth's presentation on their blood testing system because at the time that she met Elizabeth, her husband was battling lung cancer. And since then, he had lost his battle. And there had just been a large amount of time that had elapsed from when she first heard about this blood testing system to getting it up and running in their beta testing. The employee health clinic located at the company's headquarters was included in Laurie's responsibilities to supervise and coordinate. She was also the one who brought in Safeway's first ever CMO, which is Chief Medical Officer, and he was a gentleman by the name of Kent Bradley. Kent was a graduate of West Point and the military's medical school located in Bethesda, Maryland. He served as an army doctor for 17 years before being hired on as Safeway's CMO. In the army, Kent Bradley had access to and utilized the most state-of-the-art medical equipment in the world. So his interest was piqued when he was told of Theranos' allegedly groundbreaking technology. If this was actually a thing, being able to run a litany of diagnostic tests on a droplet or two of blood, it would most certainly be unlike anything that he'd ever seen before. And yeah, it's people like Kent, graduate of West Point, graduate of the United States Military's Medical School, serving 17 years providing the best medical care for the women and men who serve this nation. He is just the type of person with the kind of expertise that gets Sonny and Elizabeth shaking in their boots. Or shall we say this all together? Sonny is shaking in his blue suede Gucci's, whatever the case may be. So yeah, Kent Bradley was all set and ready to see this mini lab up and running at their employee health clinic. Well, much to his disappointment, I know it's shocking, Theranos had no intentions of setting up any of the mini labs at the clinic itself. Gee, I wonder why. I don't think there was ever really actually any explanation ever given. I can only assume that Kent most likely inquired about it. His questions were routed through Steve Bird. Then Steve went to Elizabeth about it. Then she worked her little magical spell that she had cast on him. And then that was as far as it went. Rather than setting up the mini labs to run tests on Safeway employees, Theranos hired two phlebotomists to take blood samples and send them from the clinic to the Theranos headquarters to be tested over there. Obviously defeating the entire purpose of the mini lab, which was meant to be fast, convenient, compact, portable, and the most cost-effective way of running hundreds of blood tests on site 
in order to bypass the trouble of having blood sent to outside labs for testing. And Theranosis technology also eliminated the need for large tubes of blood to be drawn. Oh wait, Kent also noticed that the phlebotomists weren't taking fingerprint blood samples. They were using the same standard hypodermic needles and drawing blood from veins in the arm. It's frequently referred to as venipuncture. And yet it was Kent's understanding that the mini lab was ready for commercial use. So what the heck was going on here? Kent was also confused by how long it actually took for the blood test results to come in. He was told that results would be transmitted via Theranos' own wireless servers, and it was supposed to be within, I believe, under 30 minutes, something like that, depending on the type of tests being run on each sample. But some of the employees' tests were taking as much as 14 days to get their results back. Kent also found out that Theranos was not conducting all of the tests with its own systems, or even in their own labs. Despite the fact that Kent was told that Theranos did all the testing, he found out that some of the blood samples were being sent to Associated Regional and University Pathologists Incorporated, which is based in Salt Lake City at the University of Utah's Pathology Department. It's ARUP for short, A-R-U-P. However, of the numerous things that Kent started seeing that he found to be concerning, what really got him worried were some of the unusual results that employees were getting back, indicating that there was something wrong with them when they had previously thought that they had clean bills of health. So Kent did what Kevin Hunter wanted to do for Walgreens. Remember him? He was the laboratory consultant that they hired And what he wanted to do was run some comparative testing against blood tests that he wanted sent to Stanford University to see how their results matched up with Theranos's. But he was never able to run those tests to make those comparisons. And he was basically shut down and shut out because he was one of those question-asking types who kept challenging Queen Elizabeth. So she had him ousted from her kingdom. Kent decided to run a second round of tests at laboratories that he knew that he could trust, either LabCorp or Quest Diagnostics, so he would be able to compare their results with Theranos's. 100% of the second round of tests that he sent out returned normal results, which led him to conclude that there was something off with Theranos's testing. As Carrie Rue described in his book, he wrote, One day, a senior Safeway executive got his PSA result back. That acronym stands for prostate-specific antigen, which is a protein produced by cells in the prostate gland. The higher the protein's concentration in a man's blood, the likelier he is to have prostate cancer. The senior Safeway executive's results was very elevated, indicating that he almost certainly had prostate cancer. But Kent Bradley was skeptical. As he had done with the other employees, he sent his worried colleague to get retested at another lab, and lo and behold, that result came back normal too. Can you imagine, like, the stress and the fear 
of getting that kind of a result only to figure out it was a mistake. I mean, that stuff just doesn't happen in this day and age. It shouldn't happen. And these are the lives that Sunny and Elizabeth are messing with. So Kent decided to start documenting the test results from Theranos, along with the second set of test results that he had run on the employees who had some abnormal results. And when he put it all down in writing, side by side, some of the discrepancies were shockingly considerable. They weren't just a little off. They were way off. And what's more, whenever there were test results that did coincide with one another, they were almost always the tests that were outsourced to that lab in Utah, ARUP. So Kent went to go speak to Laurie and the company's employee health president, Brad Wolfson. He came to find that Laurie was already a bit worried about Theranos because of all the delays with the launch of the wellness centers and the mini labs. So she told Kent to bring it up to Steve, their CEO. He was the one who handled all things Theranos related. But when Kent did that, Steve was like, oh, that's a bunch of hooey fooey. Theranos' blood testing systems are as reliable as a day is long. So yeah, he's still stuck in Wonderland with Elizabeth. Back in part three, we briefly discussed laws and the federal governing bodies that oversee clinical laboratories. To refresh, this was during the time that lab consultant Kevin Hunter was hired by Walgreens. And at the time, he was trying to vet Theranos' blood testing systems. But every time he raised a question or a concern, he was either blown off or shut down altogether by both Elizabeth and her Walgreens superfans. What Elizabeth was attempting to do was to try to slip through the cracks in the system in order to sidestep federal regulators. She first told Kevin that their blood testing technology was exempt from a 1988 federal law that governed laboratories called the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments, or CLIA for short. When Theranos began drawing blood at the Safeway Health Center from their employees, those blood samples were being sent to a location in Palo Alto where Theranos had thrown together a pop-up lab sometime in early 2012 because they were moving to a bigger headquarters. Theranos was still a growing operation despite not having a blood testing device that worked. At one point, Elizabeth had made the claim that her machines were exempt from CLIA laws. Remember I told you there was this gray area between the two agencies that govern these things? Um, that was no longer the case. So they were able to obtain a compliance certification sometime towards the end of 2011. But being in compliance and being issued that certification isn't all that difficult because ultimately that responsibility gets handed down from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to the state of California's health department's lab field services and that's a division that's on a very, very tiny budget, and they just haven't been able to meet the oversight standards that they should be. So Theranos obtaining the certification was pretty simple. So this laboratory that belonged to Theranos was where the Safeway employees' blood samples were being tested, and they were not using a mini lab or an Edison. 
because there was no way either one of Theranos' devices was ready to actually be used on people. Instead, Theranos had purchased and set up a dozen or more third-party testing devices from Abbott Labs and Siemens. And the lab itself was being managed by a San Francisco-based pathologist with an alphabet soup of letters following his name, Dr. Arnold Gleb, MD, MS, DABP, FASCP, FCAP, Doctor of Medicine, Master of Surgery, Diplomate of the American Pathology Board, Fellowship of the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, and Fellow of the College of American Pathologists. What's cool about the doc is he will simply go by Arnie, but because he's extra, he spells it A-R-N-E. Arnie. I'm adding the I in my notes because I can't handle it. Arnie is in charge of a small group of lab techs, all of them certified by the state to work with human blood and fluid samples. Well, dreamers, no matter how many letters you want to tack onto the end of your name, sometimes you can only be as good as the staff that you're in charge of. And just because the state certifies people to do very specialized type of work doesn't mean that everybody knows what they are doing. You would think that it would be the case in instances like this, but not always. Because there was a lab tech named Kossel Lim, and he was doing such an abysmal job handling samples that another technician named Diana Dupuy was certain that anything that this man tested would be rendered invalid. Diana had trained at one of the most distinguished cancer clinics in the state of Texas. She was very well versed when it came to compliance and regulations outlined by CLIA laws. And if she saw something untoward, she had not a problem documenting it and reporting it. And if Kosal Lim had been put through the proper training and earned his certification, then there is no reason why he should have been making the kinds of pedestrian mistakes that he was making. And really, they don't sound like mistakes to me, but rather just being kind of sloppy and lazy. For example, Kossel Lim was not going through the proper steps when it came to handling reagents. If we've listened to podcasts and watched the documentaries out there about Theranos, we've heard the word reagent used a lot. According to reagent.co.uk, a reagent is any organic or inorganic substance that can be added to a mixture to trigger a chain of chemical reactions. It is also used to test for the presence of other substances in a solution. For example, if you've used a pregnancy test or a blood glucose testing kit or a COVID rapid test kit, then you've used reagents. And those reagents are your own body fluids, whether it be blood or urine or mucus. Diana witnessed Kossel mixing expired reagents with ones that weren't. He was not following the instructions for proper handling. He was using uncalibrated equipment He was failing to run proper quality control tests on their analyzers, and he was doing work that he was not qualified to do. 
among other things that he was doing wrong. Not one to hold her tongue, Diana discussed with him some of the things that he needed to correct, but the problems persisted. So Diana finally decided to start keeping track of the things that he was doing and emailing her findings to both Dr. Arnie and to Sonny. There were also two phlebotomists who were working at the Safeway Health Clinic that were drawing blood from their employees. They had not been properly trained to use the equipment that separates the blood cells from the plasma, which is a step needed to be completed before testing. And because they didn't know the proper settings to put the equipment at when they were using it, Diana was getting contaminated plasma. She also found that some of the tubes that the blood was being drawn into were past their expiration date. And these tubes, you know, they have anticoagulants in them in order to keep the blood from clotting. So if they're expired, then they're no good, rendering the blood no good for testing. In a normal world, in a world outside of the world that Sunny and Elizabeth reside in, a company would receive Diana's emails detailing some of the serious problems that she found out with the lab and with the staff. They would want to take actions to correct those problems to ensure that they're using best practices. But we all know by now that there is nothing normal about Theranos, Elizabeth, or Sunny. I don't know if this was an orchestrated plot to get Diana off their backs or if the timing just happened to work out right. But following one of her complaining emails, she ended up being flown to a week-long training session in Delaware to learn how to use a new analyzer that Theranos had just purchased from Siemens. When Diana got back to the lab, she walked in and discovered that it had been oddly, meticulously cleaned up from top to bottom. What she didn't know is that she was about to be the next employee to be disappeared by Sunny. Being that Diana was one of those types that does things like follow protocols and procedures, junk like that, she's probably also one of those that likes to read and to know stuff. Those qualities that Theranos just frowns upon. It's no surprise to any of us that Diana was on the chopping block. It was obvious to her that Sunny was waiting for her to get back to work after her trip to Delaware. And with his little pissy attitude and his puffy shirt, he told Diana that he had visited the lab while she was gone and found absolutely no excuse for her to have any grievances with their labs. Everything that she said was unfounded and there was no indication that there was anything inappropriate with the way that the lab was being operated. And I can only imagine that Diana was standing there like completely stunned. But Sonny wasn't finished. He discovered that on the day that she left for her training, she had the nerve to bring her boyfriend into the building without obtaining clearance or approval. And this was an egregious infraction per their company security policies. And for that, she was fired. What a little dick, right? The reason her boyfriend was there was to help her carry some of her stuff out to her car and to take her to the airport. And I'm not sure what got into Sonny or why he suddenly had a moment where he seemed to second guess his decision to disappear Diana. But he went over and asked Dr. Arnie to come to the meeting room and wanted to know if Diana was an integral part of his staff and if he wanted her to stay. 
And Dr. Arnie said yes. He didn't want her to be let go. So Sunny decided to unfire her, albeit reluctantly. But you know, once that threshold has been crossed, it's difficult, if not impossible, for things to go back as they had been. And they weren't good to begin with. It would be only another three weeks until Sonny fired Diana for the second and final time. And the reason he gave was as weak as his fashion choices. Diana apparently brought up the fact that a vendor had a hold on all their orders because they were owed money on some previous invoices. Sonny had security escort Diana out of the building without allowing her to gather up her personal belongings. After that, she sent an email to both Sonny and Elizabeth, calling him a loose cannon, and I think that's being overly nice, and the only way he knows how to manage is by way of fear and intimidation, and that Theranos is operating a second-rate lab with an inferior staff that is someday going to get them in hot water. Sonny said that he would have someone meet her outside the building where the lab was located in order for her to collect her belongings, but did tell her to expect some emails from their attorneys. And she did receive those emails. She was being told to sign an agreement to either give back or destroy anything that she still had in her possession related to her time at Theranos, and also reminded her that she was bound by the non-disclosure agreement that she signed when she was hired. Diana was pretty upset by the way that she was treated and the way that she was fired, and she was certain that she had a good case for a wrongful termination lawsuit. But when she sought the advice of an attorney, that attorney found Theranos was being represented by the most high-powered firm in Palo Alto, and she was told that there was no way that they could go up against them. So Diana signed the papers that Theranos wanted her to sign and grudgingly let it go. Meanwhile, as 2012 was going along and chugging into 2013, Safeway was still moving forward with their partnership with Theranos, totally in the dark, of course, as to all of the turmoil going on at the lab with its technicians. Theranos was still running all employee blood tests at the Safeway Health Clinic. While Safeway was still busy remodeling their Northern California stores, to make way for all the new wellness centers. You know, the ones that Theranos designed specifically for the mini labs to be placed in. In fact, Safeway started hiring phlebotomists in each of their stores that were ready. All they needed was for Theranos to get their butts into gear and bring on those long-awaited blood testing systems. But the dates for that to actually happen continued to be postponed. CEO Steve Bird was asked about this wellness play, like, what's going on here? We've been waiting. He had first mentioned it at the end of the first quarter in 2012. He assured their financial analysts that it was coming. Don't worry. They weren't ready to unveil just yet, but he couldn't get specific because he had to swear on the life of his firstborn that he would keep everything confidential. So there were very, very few people outside of himself and some of his closest top executives that knew what was going on. But he promised, he swore, it's going to be worth it. Just wait. The 2012 second, third, and fourth quarters all ended with still nothing going on in the wellness centers. 
Not one single mini-lab had been placed. Safeway executives were getting pretty frustrated and fed up with the whole situation because they were due to receive their earnings bonuses and nothing was materializing. Their bonuses are based on their revenue profits and stuff like that. I don't know. I'm not a corporate person. Their analysts had projections set with the Theranos partnership and wellness centers factored in. They figured that if they were to have around 50 customers each day visiting the wellness centers, they predicted somewhere around $250 million in additional earnings for the company. But it wasn't happening. And to make things even worse, Safeway had already dumped about $100 million into store renovations for those wellness centers. So, unfortunately, things started going downhill for Steve Bird. The immediate issue moving forward was what to do with the space that was being taken up by these wellness centers. Kent Bradley, the chief medical officer, and Laurie Renda wanted to try to figure out what they could do with that space so it wouldn't go to waste while they waited for Theranos to get things moving along here. The two of them came up with a couple of ideas in the same vein as what it was intended, possibly turning it into a full-service medical clinic and hiring in registered nurses staffed at each one. But when they ran the idea by Steve, he in turn ran it by Elizabeth, and she flat out refused to give up the space, ensuring that the launch was coming. It's going to be any day now, any second. I swear to God, pinky swear. Legend has it, to this day, Steve Bird is still out there somewhere waiting. Even if what Elizabeth was saying was true, and we know that it wasn't, Safeway was no longer willing to wait. Their board of directors had decided that it was time, after two decades as CEO, for them to cut ties with Steve Bird. The first half of his career had seen Safeway stocks hit all-time highs, and he was tremendously successful leading the company. That was back in the day when Steve's focus was on the grocery side of the business, which makes sense seeing as it is a grocery store. But once the second half of his career with Safeway was more centered on healthcare and employee wellness, in the end, Safeway was and is still primarily a grocery store. Once Steve had made the decision to put his faith and an enormous amount of money into Theranos and the wellness centers, along with a series of launch delays, all of that was the final nail in Steve's coffin. In a roundabout, indirect way, Steve Bird getting the axe can, in part, be attributed to Elizabeth, Sonny, and Theranos. On January 2, 2013, Safeway announced that Steve would be retiring that May. While that was what Wall Street and the media were told, the truth was is that the board of directors had asked him to step down. He was still proud of his accomplishments at Safeway, and he continued to express his excitement about the direction that Safeway was going with their wellness centers and the health of their employees. Well, you know that once the older, rich, white guy was out of the picture, that meant Elizabeth was no longer willing to communicate with anybody else at Safeway. If anyone wanted to speak to somebody at Theranos, they were routed to Sonny and his little shat pack. But Christian Holmes and his little motley crew of time wasters are just useless. 
Every time anyone from Safeway tried talking to Sonny, his I don't have time for this shit attitude was abundantly clear. He would tell them if any of them had a clue how much went into this kind of technology that they were getting from Theranos, they would understand that you cannot rush this. This was a world altering innovation, he said, and they needed to consider themselves lucky that Theranos would be in their stores exclusively. While the Safeway executives couldn't stand Sonny and his smug attitude and his pretentiousness and the way he dressed, they were still suffering from a severe case of FOMO. They couldn't let Theranos go and link up with their biggest competitor, CVS. That was still their fear. And while none of us are here sitting here feeling bad that Steve ended up losing his job in part because of Theranos, it is still Another deception on the part of Elizabeth, mostly, that kept leading him on. She played him on his passion for health and wellness. And while it did not work out for Steve, he did end up launching his own consulting firm focused on what he was trying to do for Safeway, which was to lower health care costs for corporations. In fact, Steve was still hooked on homes that he tried contacting her after he founded his company that he called Bird Health, but she ignored him. So now we're going to go back in time a little bit, back to May of 2011, when Elizabeth attended an event at the United States Marines Memorial Club in San Francisco. It was at this event that she met four-star General James Mad Dog Mattis who would later on be President Trump's Secretary of Defense from 2017 to 2018. A little background on him, according to Britannica.com, General Mattis enlisted in the Marines in 1969 while going to Central Washington University as a part of the ROTC program. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in 1972 and continued to rise through the ranks as he was given a series of small unit commands. As a major, he worked in recruiting in Portland, Oregon. Then he was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. He was sent to the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Shield. He was promoted to Colonel after receiving a Bronze Star for Valor. Then he was promoted to Brigadier General in 1997. He was given command of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Brigade. That's a mouthful. 1st Marine Expeditionary Brigade, and then was chosen to lead two Navy amphibious groups during the planning stages of the war in Afghanistan, and he was the first Marine to be given such a command. And his command would be instrumental in capturing Kandahar in November of 2001, the spiritual home of the Taliban. He was promoted to Major General and led the 1st Marine Division in the early stages of the Iraq War, and then he was redeployed for a second time in late 2003. In 2004, after receiving his third star, he was assigned to Marine Combat Development in Quantico, Virginia. He was promoted to general in 2007 and led U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan in 2010. He held that position until he retired from the Marines in 2013. In late 2016, General Mattis was chosen to serve as Trump's Secretary of Defense. However, the Trump administration had some issues. 
It had been marred with infighting and frequent turnover amongst Trump's staff and cabinet. So in the summer of 2018, when Trump said that the United States would suspend all joint military exercises with South Korea, that move surprised the Pentagon and Secretary Mattis. Combat readiness was Mattis's favorite thing in the world. And the United States had long had a commitment to the security of South Korea. While the military exercises did resume, a rift between President Trump and Secretary Mattis had been created. So six months later, in December of 2019, President Trump announced that he was withdrawing U.S. troops from Syria, where they were conducting counterterrorism operations. Trump moved forward with that decision anyway, despite his senior advisors' strong objections to it. The next day, Mattis announced that he was resigning, effective February 28, 2019. His resignation letter, which stated in part that Trump needed to find a new Secretary of Defense that shared the same views as his. But because the letter got Trump's undies in a bunch, he ordered Mattis to leave on December 31, 2018. He didn't want him around into the next year. So it was at that event in San Francisco where Elizabeth met General Mattis. And the idea of getting Theranos blood testing systems implemented in the United States military was born. We've heard this talked about repeatedly. You know, Elizabeth was willing to give her sales pitch to any older, rich, white guy with an earshot. And it just so happened that General Mattis was interested when she suggested that Theranos devices would be able to provide injured troops with a near instantaneous diagnosis, which would expedite treatment and lower the number of military casualties. Now this was talk in his language. It tugged at his heartstrings. Mattis, he is all about the lives of his troops. It is his highest priority. And anything that would help to ensure their health and safety, he wanted it. So after Elizabeth did her magic on the general, he contacted the Department of Defense Central Command and requested that they set up a live demonstration of Theranos' technology in the battlefield. Well, as much as Lizzie the liar and Sonny the shyster would love for everybody to just take what they have to say at face value, and many did, otherwise they wouldn't have been able to carry on this unscrupulous chicanery for the better part of 15 years, Sometimes there are just rules to follow, and the military is no exception. Elizabeth's allure and her bewitchery begins and ends with whatever older, rich, white elbow that she happens to be rubbing. From there, she and Theranos become some sort of mystical figure that nobody else seems to know anything about. So General Mattis was super excited about this device. And he put it to Lieutenant Colonel David Shoemaker. He wanted him to get this thing going. He wanted this implemented and deployed for his troops. At the time, Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker was the deputy director for the Division of Regulated Activities and Compliance for the Army's Medical Department in Fort Detrick, Maryland. 
What that means is when it comes to any medical devices that the Army decides to use, he makes sure that they follow all of the laws and regulations. You know, those things that Elizabeth and Sonny are allergic to and it causes them to break out in hives. And it says that that this is the Army that does all of this testing with the devices. So I don't know if they're like the guinea pigs or the military or what, but I suppose somebody has to be. Among the list of things that Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker has in his name and title, he also has the distinction of being a doctor, with his degree being in microbiology, and he also worked for years researching vaccines for certain viral infections, one being tularemia, which I'd never heard of, but it's a bacteria that can be found in animals like rabbits and rodents. It can be passed on to people through ticks and fly bites, and by also coming into contact with an infected animal. In the 1960s and early 70s, the United States actually weaponized and stockpiled tularemia during the Cold War, but ultimately destroyed all of it by 1973. There doesn't appear to be a vaccine or an antibiotic for tularemia that is approved for use in the United States, but Russia has developed one, but there is question as to whether or not it's safe to use. Symptoms include things like a really high fever, dangerously high fever, severe cough, chest pains, skin ulcers, and if it isn't treated, it will spread throughout the lungs and bloodstream and is most deadly if the bacteria is inhaled, though it can be introduced from touch or an insect bite. So Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker has an extensive background in this, and in addition to that, he is the first member of the Army to complete a year-long fellowship through the FDA so he is very, very knowledgeable about everything that Sonny and Elizabeth try to ignore and avoid. And you know, this is always, always going to be a stumbling block for Theranos. They are never going to be able to get that mini lab past federal regulators. But for some reason, they just keep thinking at this point that somebody along the way is just going to see enough dollar signs to give them a pass. I just don't know what was going on with Elizabeth or Sonny for that matter. He's the bigger asshole to me, but he wouldn't have gotten Theranos anywhere with his crummy little attitude. It was Elizabeth who carried the lies for as long and as far as this had gone. And I actually, for the life of me, cannot even figure out what her end game was and if she even really had one. In November of 2011, Elizabeth invited Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker, along with a handful of military delegates to the Theranos headquarters, to listen to her pitch the company's blood testing technology. It was only just a few minutes into her presentation when Shoemaker stopped her and informed her that the regulatory format that she was detailing right there is not going to fly. From there, he named off all of the various points that he knew would cause Theranos machines to fail to meet federal standards. Elizabeth was visibly irked by what she was being told by Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker. I don't know if she straight out said that their blood testing machines would not require FDA approval or if she just kind of hinted around it at this point, but whatever it was that she was saying, Shoemaker understood that the intention was to bypass the FDA completely. And he made it very clear that this was not going anywhere if that was her intention. The FDA would never allow Theranos' machines to be used without 
the agency's approval, especially if she expected it to be used across the country and in their battlefields. Well, not one that likes to ever be told no, Elizabeth emphatically disagreed with Dr. Lieutenant Colonel Deputy Director for the Army's Medical Department of Division and Regulated Activities and Compliance and resident expert on all things FDA. And she told him, nah, my attorney said that I don't have to get FDA approval. And Shoemaker was like, did this girl go to college? Because he could tell right away that she wasn't listening to him and she had no idea what she was talking about. And she argued with everything that he was trying to tell her. And because Elizabeth didn't have any regulatory consultant with her, leading him to believe that she doesn't have one working for her because she doesn't like that sort of stuff, you know, because they make her follow all of these rules and junk, right? And if that was the case, if she did not have an expert on regulations on her staff, then she is working from a very, very ignorant place. Healthcare is so heavily regulated, more regulated than any other industry in the United States because it involves people's lives. Shoemaker was baffled that Elizabeth thought that she would be able to circumvent the FDA. So he just shrugged and told her, look, if you want him to approve the rollout of her machines onto his battlefields, then have a letter from the FDA that endorses what she was saying. Elizabeth continued to be visibly agitated as she carried on, but she completely ignored Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker for the remainder of the meeting. But he wasn't quite ready to shut everything down without getting another opinion. Now, Shoemaker could tell that Elizabeth was very determined and hell-bent on what she was telling him. And the fact was that some of his colleagues at Central Command were kind of on the fence about it. Like they were still interested in the technology. And if it was all that she said that it was, at least they could try to look into it a little bit further before making their final decisions. Shoemaker had just the person. There's a gentleman by the name of Jeremiah Kelly, an attorney for the Army who had once worked at the FDA. A month after her first meeting with Shoemaker, Elizabeth went for a follow-up meeting at the Washington, D.C. offices of her attorney's law firm over there. She went by herself, and she had with her one piece of paper that had a short outline that detailed Theranos' regulatory plan, which was basically the same thing as what she had told Shoemaker the month before. Jeremiah took one look at it, and said that the structure was quite inventive, and he'd even describe it as devious. What Elizabeth had written on that one piece of paper that she brought with her was that Theranos' machines were only portable devices meant to be used to process blood samples only. The actual analysis of the blood collected would be happening at their laboratories in Palo Alto, California. The data would then be sent from those blood samples wirelessly to the lab technicians who would examine the data and interpret what they were receiving. And this is the reason why the only thing that needed actual certification was their lab in California. The mini lab, even though it has the word lab in its name, she said, was exempt from FDA regulations because it's nothing more than a dumb fax machine. 
I don't know if those were Carrie Rue's words or if that's how Elizabeth described it, but that's the basis for Elizabeth's little theory here. And then she brought up the issue that Walgreens lab consultant Kevin Hunter had problems with. When Elizabeth said that Theranos' proprietary blood testing devices are laboratory developed so that they are beyond the scope of FDA regulations and requirements. So what Elizabeth is proposing to do here is a convoluted attempt to get the mini labs sent out for use anywhere and everywhere around the world with only one single CLIA certified lab in Palo Alto. Clever? Perhaps. Shady? Definitely. This wasn't going to fly with Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker or with Jeremiah Kelly. They argued that the mini lab is more than just a quote-unquote dumb fax machine. Ironic, huh? How much dumber the mini lab was than an actual fax machine, right? From everything that they had been told by Elizabeth herself, starting with General Mattis and now with them once again, is that Theranos is the maker of a revolutionary blood testing machine and they are subject to the same requirements as every other commercial device out there. They are not going to be able to get around needing FDA approval. And we all know what Elizabeth Holmes is like when somebody tells her that she can't do something. You either get told F you or you get told to F off. She will just demand for things to just happen the way that she wants them to happen. And she will double, triple, quadruple down on her demands. Otherwise, she'll fire everybody until she finds somebody who will. Unfortunately for Elizabeth, she has no authority over the United States military. And not every single older, rich, white guy on the planet is going to fall for her and all this hype. Though it is amazing that enough did to enable her to perpetrate the fraud across many years and many millions of dollars. While at this second meeting with Shoemaker, she didn't get as icy and as testy as she had the first time that they met, and she still insisted that her plot was legit and continued to argue her stance. So it, they remained at a stalemate. And Shoemaker was a bit surprised by the fact that Elizabeth came by herself. They met at the offices of the law firm representing Theranos, and she cited the advice that her attorneys had given her. But there was nobody from the law firm to affirm what she was saying. I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say that it's probably because she was lying. Shoemaker repeated that if she could get it in writing from the FDA that her regulatory runaround was valid, then they could begin the process of testing Theranos devices in the battlefield. Elizabeth assured him that she would get that in writing for him, though Shoemaker was certain that she wouldn't be able to. Unless... Perhaps she managed to charm somebody at the FDA into it, but it's not going to happen. Shoemaker left the meeting confident that what he insisted upon was the right thing, and he figured, okay, now it's up to Theranos to take the next steps. It wouldn't be until about six months later that he heard any more about the topic. He began getting emails from Central Command regarding the Theranos devices. And it was irritating to him because he clearly told Elizabeth, get him something in writing 
from the FDA. Not only did she not come up with a letter from the FDA, he hadn't heard not one single word from her since they last met. So Shoemaker decided to get in touch with the FDA directly, sending out an email in June of 2012 to Sally Hodgevat, who ran their departments that oversee microbiological devices. He and Sally had worked together previously through FDA-related business, and so he told her the details of what was going on with Theranos and their creative approach to regulation that attempted to get around the agency's approval. And while Shoemaker didn't think much of the email, it would end up triggering a series of events that would have Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker made to come face to face with one very angry four-star general, Mad Dog himself. While Carrie referenced one of the many quotes that General Mattis is famous for when giving interviews, I'll share just a few more of them so you have an idea of how intimidating of a figure that he is known for being. They're called Mattisisms, and they usually involve shooting and killing people, at least the ones he's most famous for. He is known to have said, you go into Afghanistan and you got guys who slap women around for five years because they didn't wear a veil. Guys that ain't got no manhood left anyway. It's a hell of a lot of fun to shoot them. Actually, it's quite fun to fight them. It's a hell of a hoot. It's fun to shoot some people. I'll be right up there with you. I like brawling. The first time you blow somebody away is not an insignificant event. That said, there are some assholes in the world that just need to be shot. There are hunters and there are victims. By your discipline, cunning, obedience, and alertness, you will decide if you are a hunter or a victim. I come in peace. I didn't bring artillery. But I'm pleading with you, with tears in my eyes. If you F with me, I'll kill all of you. There is only one retirement plan for terrorists. There are some people who think that you have to hate them in order to shoot them. I don't think you do. It's just business. One time, General Mattis was asked what keeps him up at night, and he replied, nothing. I keep other people awake at night. We backed off in good faith and tried to give you a chance to straighten this problem out, but I'm going to beg with you for a minute. I'm going to plead with you. Do not cross us, because if you do, the survivors will write about what we do here for the next 10,000 years. There is nothing better than getting shot at and missed. It's really great. And the quote that Carrie Rue used in his book is, be polite, be professional, but have a plan to kill everybody that you meet. So yeah, Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker had no idea that his email to Sally was going to end up biting him in the butt. And it would be very one mad, mad dog biting him. And he had asked his direct supervisor if he could send the email before he even did it. And Sally ended up sending his email to a handful of people that she worked with at the FDA to get their input. One of the people who received her forwarded email was the head of the in vitro diagnostics and radiological health division, Alberto Gutierrez. He's a Princeton graduate with a PhD in chemistry and a good portion of his career with the FDA was examining and understanding laboratory-developed tests, which Elizabeth claimed was what they were doing. 
and that falls into that gray area between the two oversight agencies, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS for short, and the FDA. So this is how Kerry Rue explained the regulation of laboratory-developed tests in his book. He wrote, The FDA had long considered it within its powers to regulate laboratory-developed tests. However, in practice, it had not done so because back in 1976, when the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was amended to expand the agency's authorities from drugs to medical devices, laboratory-developed tests were not common. They were only made by local laboratories occasionally when an unusual medical case required it. That changed in the 1990s when labs started to make more complex tests for mass use, including genetic testing. By the FDA's own reckoning, scores of flawed and unreliable tests had since been marketed for conditions ranging from whooping cough and Lyme disease to various types of cancers, resulting in untold harm to patients. There was a growing consensus within the FDA that it needed to start policing this part of the lab business, and the biggest proponent of that was Alberto Gutierrez. When he read Shoemaker's email that Sally had forwarded to him, it was laughable. He couldn't believe how ridiculous the whole premise of Theranos' regulatory plan was. In fact, what Elizabeth was trying to do is the very thing that Alberto was trying to stop. The two agencies, the CMS and the FDA, had long worked at closing that gray area gap that Elizabeth was trying to float around in. While he ended up forwarding Shoemaker's email yet again to a pair of his colleagues over at CMS, asking if they would consider Theranos devices to be laboratory developed, and after they discussed the matter for a bit, they all felt that Theranos was not in compliance with federal regulations, and they decided to have one of their representatives in their San Francisco offices pay Theranos an unannounced visit, just to see exactly what this Theranos company that none of them had ever heard of before was doing and to make sure that the people in charge understood what they can and cannot do. Enter into the drama Gary Yamamoto, longtime inspector for the CMS. He showed up at Theranos on August 13, 2012. Elizabeth and Sunny quickly intercepted him, and the three of them went into a private meeting room. Gary told them that his visit was triggered by a complaint that his agency received regarding Theranos. While he was not at liberty to tell them where this complaint originated from, he didn't have to, because they already knew. It has been surmised that someone had informed them of Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker's email to the FDA. And with that, Elizabeth and Sonny, who were both clearly livid, began another fresh round of lies and duplicity. They did speak to Shoemaker, but they denied having any idea what the heck he was talking about in his emails. We never said that they, we were going to distribute blood devices with all over the world with only one CLIA certification. That's like so ridiculous. I mean, whatever gave him that idea, right? Sonny, yeah, I know, right, Elizabeth? A couple of idiots. And so Gary Yamamoto then asked, well, if you knew that you needed FDA approval, then why obtain a CLIA certification in the first place? And Sonny pulled some cockamamie story out of his ass about wanting to learn more about operating a laboratory and figure that the best way to do so was to open their own. That made absolutely no sense, and it raised Gary's suspicions even more. 
He told Elizabeth and Sonny to show him their lab, and this time they had no choice. He's from a federal agency, and they could not deny him access like they had been trying to do whenever anyone asked to see it. So Sonny escorted him to where the lab was located, at least one of the labs. I believe that there are two labs at some point in the building, one of which they didn't want anybody to see. Gary was a bit underwhelmed when he saw the lab, but on the surface, there did not appear to be anything wrong. He noted that there were several blood analyzers, but he wondered where were these miracle labs that Theranos was trying to peddle. He wasn't seeing anything there that he hadn't seen before. So when he asked Sonny about that, Sonny told him that, oh, their mini labs are still in the developmental stages and that Theranos had no intentions of distributing the machines without FDA authorizations. Swear to God. Now, remember, Gary had been in the loop with everybody else that had seen Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker's email. And he knew that Shoemaker is the one who said that Theranos was trying to get creative and tricky in order to go around having to obtain FDA approval. Yet he's hearing the exact opposite coming from Sonny. So somebody here is lying. And Gary didn't think that Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker would say that unless that that's what he was told. So Gary didn't know what to make of this, but He found it all to be really fishy. While there was nothing about the lab that warranted a citation, Gary made it crystal clear that they absolutely could not do what Shoemaker detailed in his email that Elizabeth had told him. They could not have their blood analyzers sent all over the world and operate them under the umbrella of one certified lab. If they were going to place Theranos machines, every single one of them would need to have the same CLIA certification, though an FDA approval would be the best option. Per usual, Miss Can't Take No for an Answer Elizabeth got all bent out of shape over Gary Yamamoto's popping in unannounced and quickly went on the attack. She shot an irate email to General Mattis about the nerve of Colonel Shoemaker's attempt to stand in her way of getting her devices out there to save the lives of our American soldiers. She flat out called Shoemaker a liar and that everything that he said to the FDA and the CMS was not true. She ticked off everything that Shoemaker told the two agencies that she claimed was Shoemaker's effort to mislead them about Theranos and their blood analyzers. And according to Bad Blood, in the closing paragraph of her email, she wrote, We are taking swift action to correct these misleading statements. I would very much appreciate your help in getting this information corrected with the regulatory agencies. Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker communicated to the FDA that he was giving them a quote-unquote heads up about what Theranos was up to and provided the agencies with incorrect information that makes us appear to be in violation of the law. Wow. And this is some 10 years ago when this happened. Like people were already seeing that Theranos was doing illegal stuff. Since this misinformation came from within the Department of Defense, it will be invaluable if this information is formally corrected by the right people. I looked around to see if I could find the whole email that Elizabeth sent to 
General Mattis, but I wasn't able to find it. However, it never ceases to amaze me, the chutzpah of this woman. She is completely deluded if she thinks she's going to get these heaps of junk out there for use in the military. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times. Elizabeth Holmes is a dummy. It doesn't take a whole lot of smarts to be a hustler. And she knows how to put on a good show. As long as her audience consists of older, rich, white men. That's not to say that the ones who fell for her scheme are dumb. But she managed to zero in on people. And she exploited their individual weaknesses and preferences especially when she targeted the really old guys, the prominent, powerful men. She would shower them with attention. And once the value of Theranos skyrocketed, after she managed to charm two former secretaries of state onto the Theranos board of directors, and we'll definitely get to talking about the powerful men that she filled up her board with. It was within three years of getting those board members assembled that Theranos reached its peak valuation of $9 billion, and she was able to give these men millions of dollars worth of stock. And because Theranos was never publicly traded, they weren't subject to the same scrutiny by government agencies. But there's so much more to talk about when it comes to that, and we'll come back to it when we get to it. So once General Mad Dog received that email, he was infuriated. The only thing that General Mattis was concerned with was the lives of his men. General Mattis says men, and that's the majority of the people that he's in charge of. But warfare has been modernized to the point where even though women have no positions available to them on the front lines of a battlefield, they've been doing so anyway, because the front line isn't the way it used to be. So I'll say Mattis is only concerned with the lives of everyone, men and women. He forwarded the email to Colonel Aaron Edgar, who was the command surgeon that Mattis gave the responsibility of getting Theranos devices deployed for field testing. Mattis's email to him said in part, Who is Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker and what is going on here? I have tried to get this device tested in theater ASAP, legally and ethically. And I need to know how this visit happened as related below. And he's referring to Elizabeth's angry email to him that he attached. I need ground truth for the accuracy of the statements below. If I need to see Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker and man so that they could explain how I'm pushing for something unethical and illegal, please set up a time for them to meet with me in Tampa when I return to the States. So... General Mattis is taking the accusations that Theranos is being shady personally because he's the one that's going to bat for Elizabeth. When Colonel Edgar spoke to Elizabeth directly about the situation, she threatened to sue Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker. So Colonel Edgar passed that message along to him, along with the details of the surprise inspection at Theranos, as well as the email that Elizabeth had sent to General Mattis and General Mattis's angry response. So when Shoemaker got all these emails and saw that Mattis was fixing to kick some ass and take some names, he felt the blood drain from his face. Mattis was feared, and nobody wanted to end up on his bad side. So Shoemaker was a little shook, to a point. 
because he knew that he was right. But he didn't know that Theranos would receive a surprise visit triggered by his email, and he really didn't intend for that to happen. They apparently interpreted the email to mean that Theranos was already in the process of using the regulation strategy instead of it being something that they were discussing that they wanted to do in order to get around needing FDA approval for their blood testing systems. Theranos also claimed that they were told it was Shoemaker who wanted the surprise inspection, but that wasn't true either. CMS never told that to Elizabeth. Then Colonel Edgar had to admit that he was actually the one who forwarded Shoemaker's email to Elizabeth, which was something that he shouldn't have done. And that's how Elizabeth found out that it was Shoemaker's initial email to the FDA that triggered everything that followed. So Colonel Edgar told Shoemaker to come down to Tampa to see General Mattis in person. That way he could explain it to him and what his concerns were. So Shoemaker, even though he was pretty nervous about having to meet with Mattis, he decided to go, but he also asked Alberto Gutierrez to go as well, just for some backup because he was pretty high ranking in the FDA. So Mattis and Shoemaker and Gutierrez met in August of 2012. Mattis told them that he wants to get Theranos devices out there for his men and it's been going on for a year, so what's up with all the delays? So the two of them broke it down for Mattis and explained the problem that they had bringing Theranos devices for live testing onto the battlefield. They needed to receive FDA approval, and because Theranos hadn't done that yet, they can only be used on patients with some very strict guidelines, and the people who were giving the blood samples would have to give their consent for their blood to be used. And this is just something that's really difficult to do in areas of the world where they're involved in a war. General Mattis still wanted to see how they would be able to move forward with this because, you know, Elizabeth has hyped him up about saving lives and, and helping soldiers and blah, blah, blah. And he's all about that. So, the two of them, Shoemaker and Gutierrez, offered one potential solution. They could allow for Theranos devices to run some limited testing on leftover blood samples from injured or hospitalized soldiers, but the blood samples would have to be anonymous, and that way they don't have to go through the trouble of getting consent. And with that, they would be able to conduct a study within those parameters. This wasn't what Mattis wanted, but it was a start. And then what they would be able to do is to see if Theranos results were matching up the results from the military's own testings. Shoemaker thought it was actually a really good idea for Theranos because back when he had been working on developing various tests to detect biological threats over the course of five years of his career, he would have loved to have had access to blood from some active duty service members. It would definitely help Theranos down the line when they were ready to seek FDA approval. But there's a big problem. And it's a recurring theme with Elizabeth and Sonny and Theranos. Their blood testing machines just suck. And they know that they suck. 
and they are in no position to start running any kind of testing on it. And they knew it. And they would never be able to take advantage of the opportunity that Shoemaker had worked out with General Mattis. And then General Mattis retired from the military six months later in March of 2013. And Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker would also retire four months after that in July of 2013. Mattis had been Elizabeth's best and strongest connection in the military. And now he was virtually useless to her. And that's because per military rules, he is not allowed to lobby anyone in the military until he's been retired for 12 months. He can't hit anyone up for any favors on behalf of Theranos. Now, he would go on to join Theranos's board of directors later on in 2013, and he would become one of several high-profile members on Elizabeth's board. When she asked Mattis to join, he was like, yeah, I don't have any background in medicine or any experience working on a corporate board of directors. But, you know, Elizabeth, and she did her little magic and convinced him to join, at which point Mattis went and picked up some books that gave him pointers on being a board member. I don't know, board of directors for dummies or something like that. Okay, so we're just about ready to wrap this up. And let me get to one last thing before I do go. A couple of episodes back when we discussed at length the relationship that Elizabeth's parents had with friends of theirs in Washington, D.C., the Fwizzes, Richard and Lorraine. Richard was that doctor that got angry when he found out that Elizabeth had founded Theranos without seeking him out for advice since he was in the same line of work. So he decided to retaliate by applying for a patent that he knew Elizabeth was going to need some years down the line. And as the time was approaching for them to go to trial, Richard, in looking over some of the documents that he had on Theranos, he noticed that while Elizabeth was listed on every one of Theranos's patents, there were many patents that listed another person as being a contributing inventor, and his name was Ian Gibbons. And we're going to pick up the story from there when we get back to the sixth part of the series. We're going to have to get a little bit serious now because it's getting to the point where Theranos, Elizabeth, and Sunny are going to start doing some real harm to people, harm to their employees, patients, investors, and their families. All right, that is it for this episode. I want to thank you all so much for listening and again for your patience in me getting this episode out to you. Please come and join the discussion in our Facebook group and also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. We have also started a brand new series on Patreon as well. We're discussing the case of killer mom, Teresa Cross, also known as Teresa Knorr. It's a brutal one, so there's definitely not going to be a whole lot of kidding around in that case. So if you're on Patreon, then you may be enjoying the kickoff of that story. And if you're not, it is only a dollar a month to listen to this and dozens of other cases that you won't be able to hear anywhere else. All right. I'm sorry that this took an extra few days for me to get it out there. I'm going into part six, maybe later tonight if I can, possibly tomorrow. And also, don't forget to listen through to the end to hear that promo from the Dealing Justice podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me on this freezing cold night. Well, 
To me, it's freezing cold. Some of you, I'm sure, are in a much deeper freeze than I am here. But when it gets down under like 35 degrees at night, I just I can't. I almost die. I pretty I mean, I did die. I went outside and I died earlier. <laughs> but I do hope that all of you are keeping safe and keeping warm. I'm your host, Roseanne. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams. time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. They rolled her up in something and they put her in an alligator pit. She literally vanished without a trace. Because we will find answers. We're not going to go away. If it takes years, we're not going to go away. We invite you to join us on Season 2 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasak And I'm Laurie Jennings. And together, we host Dealing Justice. In each episode, we spotlight one card from the cold case playing cards. We're meeting the family, learning about the towns, and sometimes even hearing new information for the very first time. It's important for us to let the victim's family and friends tell their story. Our mission is to humanize each and every victim so that they become more than just a cold case. Brittany was a fun-loving kid growing up. She was spicy. She didn't take no crap from anyone. We're asking for our daughter's whereabouts to be made known. You can support these families by listening to the stories, spreading the word, and hopefully someone will come forward to help solve the case. I'm her father. I'm ultimately responsible for finding my daughter. We would love to see the day when there are no more faces to put on the cold case playing cards. But until that day comes, we'll continue telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice.